0: Our studios moved around a little bit today. Our foam is all still up though today.
1: <laughs> yeah. So last week I was like, "Hey babe, can I uh, can I spray glue all the foam to the wall because it keeps falling down?" And he was like, "Um, no, don't do that." And I was like, "I got to do something." And then we came home this week and they're all glued to plywood board, which is hanging on the wall now.
0: Yes. And it looks
1: really good, though.
0: Yeah, it looks really good. It's all up on the wall. I don't know how he got it around the lamp, though. I'm a little... I think he just cut it out. He cut out the
1: plywood. It's around the sockets, too. But then
0: how did he get it on the wall? With the... Did he take the whole lamp yeah, off? Yeah, he took the whole lamp off. Damn. So
1: apparently, if you threaten to get spray glue out, shit might get done. I know. All right, everybody go to your spouse and be like, Hey, I was thinking about spray gluing this to the wall and see what they say. I'm just curious. Because, I don't know, we
0: threatened and shit got done, so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, so hopefully everybody had a good holiday season. Thank you for letting us take two weeks off. We barely got yelled at for it. I know. Did we get yelled at at all? Yeah, a little bit. Not but really? it wasn't that bad. <laughs> but yeah, so today we are covering
0: the barrel murders. And if you haven't heard about this, I'm not sure where you've been living. Well,
1: actually, I mean, I think I think I hadn't heard about this case until maybe a couple of years ago. And that was because of new information that came out on the case. So. It is an older case. We're going back to the 80s um, there. Well, there's also
0: quite a few twists and turns in this case. So very important side stories is what there is. Right. So we're going to
1: try as best we can to keep you guys on track with what's going on. It's kind of hard to follow. But don't worry. When Maddie gets confused, she'll ask questions and then I'll reclarify. clarify. Right? Yes. So we do have to jump a little bit in this case. Sometimes we go back. Sometimes we go forward. It's a very, it's not exactly linear. So bear with us, hang in there, and we will try to give you this story the best that we can. In the summer of 1985, in Allenstown, New Hampshire, which has a population of about 4,000, so pretty small town, A group of boys were playing a game of hide-and-seek in the woods near the trailer park where they lived called Bear Brook Gardens. Now, this game of hide-and-seek was a little more fun than the ones I remember playing as a kid because basically they went out into the woods. One kid would be on a four-wheeler. Everybody would hide, and the last person found by the kid on the four-wheeler got to drive it next. Yeah. Sign me up for that. Who wants to play hide and seek in the woods? Because me and Maddie are getting some four-wheelers and we are going into the woods. So this game was played in Bear Brook State Park. So these murders are also referred to as the Bear Brook Murders. But it's not technically in Bear Brook State Park that these boys are. They're kind of in like a area between the trailer park and an area between the state park. But it's it's like, actually it's actually private property.
0: Yeah, it's like this little strip of privately owned land on the edge of the park. Mm-hmm.
1: But it's close enough that it's basically it's basically the park. It's basically pretty the park. much Just, so. But it's not. While playing, they found a barrel in the middle of the woods. A
0: barrel, in like in the
1: middle of the woods. It was a blue fifty-five gallon steel drum. The lid was not sealed all the way and there was a tiny piece of plastic sticking out.
0: I don't like it. I know. I don't like it at all. I don't
1: like it. One of the boys did try to pry the lid
0: off and they were suddenly hit with a terrible smell. Yeah, the bo- one of the boys describes it as like a rotteny milk smell. Mm-hmm. Instead of doing anything about this, They did what boys will do. They kicked it over and they left. And one of the boys also said that like a white kind of substance came out of it. So he was like, oh, it's just like rotten milk. Yeah. In the barrel. Later that year, on November 10th, in 1985, still same year, a hunter came across the barrel and saw that there appeared to be human remains in it. So he actually looks in the barrel. Good job. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, as an adult would do, not kids. They're like, ah, whatever. It's a barrel. In I the think woods. a lot of adults would assume it was trash or oil or something like that. No, I see a barrel. I'm assuming it's a body. But remember, the barrel is now kicked over with the lid partially off. So he notifies the police. Okay, so police actually had to deputize citizens. Mm-hmm. In order to control the scene's perimeter. Right. And that's because this is a very small
1: police station. So I think I read at the time there would have only been one officer on duty when this occurred.
0: And also this is a hard scene. Like how, where do you mark the perimeter? Like how far do do you go out? Like, yeah. And this is thick woods as well. Like thick. Right.
1: The barrel contained two bodies. One was a woman around 25 to 30 years of age, and one was a young girl around 8 to 10 years of age. They were nude and dismembered. They were wrapped in plastic that was tied together with electrical wire. Their skulls showed that they had been most likely killed by blunt force trauma.
0: They were... Estimated to be in these barrels for several months to several years. Not the clearest timeline. No. Well, how do you make a clear timeline of someone who's been in a barrel wrapped in plastic? Not properly sealed.
1: Now they've also been exposed to the elements once the seal is broken, too. So, I mean, definitely hard to determine a time of death on this. I wish they could
0: have gotten a little closer, though. This property was owned by a man named Ed Gallagher. He owned and ran a small store on the property that had burned down in 1983, two years before the barrel was found. And this
1: was like a small store where you could stop and get milk or get your cigarettes or things like that. It was used a lot by people who lived in the trailer park that lined the other side of the property.
0: Yeah. So there's no one living on the property. No witnesses. Police could not find any, anybody who had seen the barrels being dumped. Or knew anything about them at all. Yeah, It would turn out to be a frustrating and daunting process to try to identify these two victims.
1: Yeah. Well, because if you think about it, most crimes are solved when a victim is identified and then you can start to find their killer from there. Yeah. When you
0: don't know who the victim is, it's really difficult. So police started going through missing persons reports and they could not find anybody who matched the description. They could find no dental records matching either. Nothing. Yeah, that's got to be so frustrating. And there's an 8 to 10-year-old
1: and right, a, woman. There's a There's a child. Probably a mother and a child, a woman and a child. The fact that there's nothing that they can find that matches it to me is crazy. In 1986, a sketch was done of the two, but there really was a lot of room for interpretation on this because the bodies were decomposed. We don't have the computer-generated help of making these sketches that we have now in 1987 the bodies were released and the church pooled their money in order to bury them their tombstones read here lies the mortal remains known only to god of a woman aged 23 to 33 and a girl child aged 8 to 10 their slain bodies were found on november 10 1985 in bear brook state park May their souls find peace in God's loving
0: care. And after this, the case went cold. So just a few miles away on Saturday, the day before the barrel was found, a man named Danny Paquette was shot and killed while working in his backyard. He'd been shot in the chest and police thought the bullet came from the woods across the street. Police initially thought that it might be a hunting accident.
1: Right. But either way, this case actually caused a huge divide in the resources available
0: for the Bearbrook case. Yeah, because remember, the police force in this town is so small. Right. And this is state police now. Right. So state police have this case.
1: But people are actually pulled off of the Danny Paquette case in order to work the Bearbrook case when it happens the following day. So we're definitely splitting resources. Are the cases connected? So when you're living in a town that barely has any murder, and then all of a sudden we have a three, man's shot. We have three dead bodies in two yeah. days, in a weekend. So it was determined
0: that it was a hunting accident and the case was closed. But in 1999, a private investigator would be hired, and he found that Danny's stepdaughter had actually been responsible for the murder.
1: Yeah, so the cases appeared to have nothing to do with each other, but it's still a really crazy case and we might talk about this later or on our Patreon or something. But it's it's crazy.
0: And I like how they're just like, oh, it's a spare it's a stray bullet from the woods, shot him directly in the chest. Right? From across the street. Yeah. Hunting no. accident. No. This is pretty crazy.
1: In May of two thousand. So we're in two
0: thousand now, you guys. And also, since between 1980, between the 80s and 2000, nothing's happened.
1: No, nothing. This is definitely a cold case. A detective named John Cody was assigned the cold case and was expected to work it in his spare time. So basically, the way I understand it is you get hired or promoted, and then Mm -hmm. you're assigned a couple cold cases that you're expected to work when you don't have an active case in front of you.
0: Yeah, but this case, obviously, like, ate at him because a child and like presumably a mother are found in a barrel well i think it's just such a strange case right
1: so it had been 15 years and there were no leads on the case he decided that he was going to go to the evidence room and take a look at the blue barrel he decided one day that he would go and take a look at the area where the barrel was found so he headed off to Bear Brooks state park He started where the barrel had been found and then he extended his search further and further out. Soon it was starting to get dark and he was considering heading back to the car, getting a flashlight, maybe taking off. But wouldn't you know it, he came across a barrel. Another
0: barrel. Yes, you heard that right. It was very
1: familiar. And was identical to the one he had been staring at in evidence, although this one was a little more rusted. Almost like it had been sitting there for 15 more years. Yeah, so this barrel, you guys, was 300 feet from where the first barrel had been found. And it contained two more bodies.
0: This time, it was two young girls wrapped in plastic.
1: And tied with electrical wire. One girl was about three years old, and the other one was about two so now we have an entire family in barrels i hate
0: that and just in
1: case you're wondering yes that barrel had been there the whole time this is not a new barrel or a new crime they find out that the barrel has been sitting there
0: just as long as the other just as
1: long as the other one had so we should probably address that right so there is a podcast called Brook podcast it's by jason moon he he does a really good job great podcast so he actually goes really in depth on this case and he did a test where he stood on an open field to gauge the distance of 300 feet and then him and his friend i don't know who he's with they took their test into the woods
0: yeah because you're thinking everyone's thinking how did the police not find this 300 300 feet like 300 feet away is another barrel with more bodies in it. How did they not find this in the first place?
1: Right. So he said that 300 feet in the woods meant something very different. Mm-hmm. Right? Because they split up. They they walked 300 feet from each other and they couldn't see each other. They had trouble finding their way back to each other. Yeah. Which I get. However, it's 300 feet. So... What kind of search was actually done in these woods if they didn't find the barrel 300 feet away? So I have a little bit of trouble with this 300 feet. And I know because here's the thing. This cop, this detective goes into the woods just to check out the area and stumbles across the barrel. Yeah. So if we did a search
0: back in 1985 where we searched the woods, what kind of search did we do? Honestly, I don't think there was a big search done at all. I think they probably checked like 25 feet around the barrel and that was it. And then they. I don't know. So I have
1: some issues with this 300 feet. Also, though, if I went into the woods to uh, Jason's point, if I went into the woods and walked 300 feet from Madison, would I think it was a reasonable amount to circle an entire perimeter to have that within the perimeter i don't know but i feel like the barrel should have been found in 1985.
0: yeah as do i but it's a really small town they were debutizing citizens like i know right (laughs) i'm not sure how much blame i want to put on the on the police department about where they searched i don't i'm not quite sure gray area so now we
1: have basically kind of an entire family we have a woman, and we have three children. So this should make it a lot easier to find them, right? And maybe that's why they couldn't find them before, because they didn't know how big the family was. Yeah. But no. The case would go cold again.
0: Okay, but years later, DNA would determine that the adult female was maternally related to the oldest and the youngest girl. So most likely a mother... It could be a sister or cousin at this point. And they also determined that the middle child was
1: no relation at all to anyone in the barrels. Yeah.
0: So the three-year-old, nothing. She's not related to anybody else in the barrels. Which, this must have been a shock,
1: right? To learn that three of them are related and one of them is not. Just a
0: random three-year-old. Oh my gosh. Also, no missing persons report on any of these people. None of them. They can't find anything. Yeah, this is crazy. It's crazy.
1: So a genealogist named Rhonda Randall, she actually goes into depth on the Bear Brook podcast about her work in this case. And I think maybe she even wrote a book. But basically, she goes to work on trying to identify who these victims might have been. Yeah. And it's not like genealogy now, right? Where you just upload your DNA and Pam, you have your entire family.
0: Like she she's is tracking.
1: You had, you had like your, your six back.
0: cousins. Yeah,
1: she she's definitely. It's going to take her a lot longer for the work that she's doing on it.
0: Yeah. In 2012, so 30 years after the first barrel was found, the missing and exploited children, or the Mech. started working on the case. New testing was done, and three years later, they had new composite images. Radioisotope testing was also done at this
1: time, and this technique can determine a person's environment using the isotopes in your hair, bone, and teeth, which is absolutely insane. There's actually a lot of cases that have been solved using this technology because they're able to take a person who has been missing or deceased for a long time, unidentified, and they can actually Trace them to the region or area that they lived, and they can also trace where they have gone, which is crazy. So, the isotopic signature of the woman and children that were related were identical, indicating that they had lived in the same area with each other, mm-hmm. while the fourth unrelated victim had a different isotopic signature. But the signature of all four indicated that they had been together for the last two weeks or up to three months. They were able to narrow down the areas that all of them had been, which narrowed it to a handful of states in the U.S. So this girl that's unrelated in the barrels. Now they know that she has not always lived with the rest of them. Yeah,
0: so she joined them with up to three. Three months before their death. Right. So was she adopted? Was she kidnapped? And guess where all this led to nothing. Zero clues. Zero clues. Nothing came of this.
1: So we continue to have these breakthroughs and get more information. And yet we're still not able to narrow down who these people
0: are. Just literally drawing blanks. Like nothing is coming up. Any of this.
1: Okay. Okay. And now is a time where we have to jump to a side story. Another side story. Of sorts. Yeah. So hang in there. We're going to talk about Soon Jun, which occurred in 2002. So she was 42 years old. She was a free-spirited woman, but she was sometimes described as lonely. She was a chemist and lived in Northern California. In December of 1999, she brought a new beau home to meet her family. He was a successful man named Larry Vanner, who actually turned out to be more of a drifter. She had hired him as a handyman, and he had been recommended by a friend of hers. Her family was immediately concerned after their encounter with Larry. <sighs> Yeah. Eunsoon began to drift away from her family and even wrote emails to them saying that she didn't want anything to do with them.
0: She was close with her family before. Right. Like, she was close with them before So, this.
1: Wedge driven in. By 2001- Red flag, right there. Red flag. I can't even imagine if you did that to me. I would be, like, tracking you down and banging on your door every day. Like, there's no way. Yeah. By 2001, Larry had moved in with Unsoon. And the two were married in a backyard ceremony, although there is no marriage license for this marriage. Okay. Eventually, her family stopped hearing from her altogether. One of Unsoon's friends got concerned when she was unable to get in touch with her, and she got a different answer every time she called. Larry would tell her that she was out of town, that she had to go do this, that she was just home and she missed her. And she had to take off to go do something work on one of his properties because he he had all these stories about all of this property that he owned and managed mm-hmm. and did all of these things so
0: unson's friend ended up calling the police thank you and good job like seriously, seriously seriously thank you larry was brought in for questioning he was evasive and made police very suspicious good That's what you should do when you're called in for questioning. Right. Let me make myself as suspicious as possible. There's actually a video of this interview, too. I'll try to see if I can find it. Okay, so he claimed that Eunsun was fine and she was out of town for a job, but that he couldn't get in touch with her. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Mm-hmm. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. It's like 2002. I'm sure you can somehow. I'm sure there's a cell phone. Somehow you can get in touch with her. Right. When they ran his name, it came back as an index number.
1: Yeah, which basically is like a placeholder assigned to people whose identities cannot be confirmed. So, like, you give your information to a police officer, but you don't have ID on you. You don't have Uh whatever. They can't confirm it. So, that incident would be assigned to an index number. Gotcha.
0: Okay. I see. They asked if they could take his fingerprints. He agreed and they took him to get printed. His fingerprints came back while he was still there at the police station and they came back to a man named Curtis Kimball. So, not his name. Not his name. Right. Not not it. He had a long list of crimes and aliases. He was on parole for child abandonment, but he had run out the second he was released.
1: Right, so he basically has like his appointment for his...
0: First parole appointment. Never shows up. Never shows up. Gone. Police think that he didn't realize how fast his prince would come back since it had been over 10 years since he was arrested, which... Right. Which back in the day, he would have had a couple days maybe to, to take
1: off or whatever. It's 2002 now. But they think he just didn't realize how fast that they would come back. And they also don't believe that Curtis Kimball is
0: even his real name, but
1: it's the oldest name that they have in the system for him. Mm-hmm.
0: Because he was on parole, they were now able to legally search his home. Which is Unsoon's home as well. Yes. When they arrived, they found a huge pile of cat litter in an unfinished portion of the basement. I don't like that. What? (laughs) Giant pile of
1: cat litter, never a good. And this this pile was like waist high. Yeah.
0: No. 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 All right. So, I'm guessing you can all guess what was underneath the pile of cat litter. Mm. It was the body of Unsoon June. What? what he was planning on doing with a pile of cat litter in Unsoon's body?
1: No, he was just waiting for the body to de- decompose. He covered it up with cat litter. Mm. He, even, he even warned his neighbors that he was having, like, a vermin problem. And if they f- smelt anything funny coming from the
0: garage, it was probably that. Yeah, like, he was covering his tracks. It turns out that she had been bludgeoned, and her body was dismembered. There was blood splatter on the ceiling above the pile, indicating that she had been killed right there. Larry was arrested and charged with her murder. He had also been spending her money after she disappeared. Sketchy. So he was arrested, and on the second day of his trial, he stood up and pled guilty. Right then and there. Right then and there. And I think... I have a theory about
1: this, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. We'll go digging into that. This, however, did not end the case for detectives. They continued digging into his criminal past. I think there was just something about all of these aliases and this abandoned child child that got them really kind of thinking. In May of 1985, Curtis Kimball had been arrested for drunk driving in Orange County, California. Remember,
0: Curtis is Larry. Curtis is Larry. But now Larry is Curtis. Right. He has
1: a little girl in the car with him named Lisa. And he was charged for endangering the welfare of a child. Remember, though, he's on parole for child abandonment. So we're going to tell you that story right now. Basically, though, he abandons his five-year-old daughter, Lisa, at a trailer park. And this is what happened. In 1986, at the time, he was using the name Gordon Jensen. So Gordon Jensen. So wait, Larry is Curtis. Curtis is Gordon. Now we're on to Gordon. Jesus. Curtis is now Gordon. I told you, we're going to try to keep it straight for you. Just assume that any guy we talk about is this guy. He showed up at the RV park called Holiday Host RV Park in Scottsdale, California. Him and five-year-old Lisa lived out of a truck camper. There, they met an elderly couple who they became friendly with. And the two started babysitting Lisa when he would do odd jobs. This would lead to them becoming very concerned about Lisa. He seemed to be struggling to care for her. She was super skinny. She was always dirty. Gordon had told them that Lisa's mom died of cancer when she was a baby. And he would do things like openly cry about it, get upset. I'm going to say right now, though. Gordon Jensen, I don't believe you. They suggested that their daughter had fertility issues and had been looking into adopting. Mm-hmm. He decided to let Lisa go live with the young couple on a trial basis.
0: When Lisa went to go live with the couple on a trial adoption, whatever this whatever, not quite legal thing is, yeah. yeah. They were immediate immediately concerned. Yeah. Because she started touching their son-in-law inappropriately and they realized that she had been abused and molested and tortured and Mm. terrible things. So sad. So when they tried to get in contact with Gordon, he'd vanished. He's gone. Gordon is gone. They went to the police. A warrant had been issued for his arrest, which this is where the child abandonment Mm -hmm. comes from. All the information they had on him was fake. All of it. Obviously, Gordon's not real. Gordon is not Gordon. It's all... It's not real. Yeah. Fingerprint was pulled from the RV park, came back to Curtis Kimball. So that's how the fingerprints came back to Curtis Kimball. Which is how they found out that Gordon was wasn't... Curtis. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Just let us know if you get confused. I know, right? You can't, but... I feel like we need like a... Um... Like a tree written out. Yeah, we need like a whole aliases. like timeline of his and like aliases. which alias did which the terrible awful. I thing. I will
1: give you guys a couple websites that have some timelines of all of this, which kind of helped me sort it out in my brain a little bit. Okay. In nineteen eighty eight, a few years later, he was pulled over driving a stolen car and gave the name Gerald Mockerman. So Gerald is Gordon, who is Curtis, who is Larry. Yes. But his fingerprints came back to Gordon Jensen and up came the warrant. They had taken a blood sample from Lisa to do a paternity test. But he ended up taking a plea deal and the paternity test was never completed. Like what? And this, is, this makes my blood boil. So hold on, you guys. I'm plugging my ears. You go. The plea deal dropped the child abuse the child molestation, and the charges on the stolen vehicle, and all he was sentenced for was child abandonment. You're kidding. What is that? No, it's worse. He was sentenced to three years in prison, and he only served a year and a half, and then he was released on parole but never showed up for his parole hearing, hence the parole violation. Yep. So the police just accepted that this little girl belonged to him, And they dropped the child abuse and molestation cases? No. Like, what in the actual? I can't. How does this happen? How? I know this is in 88, but I'm sorry, in 88, a year and a half does not even begin to cover
0: the damage that he did to that little girl. No. No. It does not. No. All right. Now, we are in August of 2003. So,
1: this is after the unsoon. So, this is after he's in jail, for the murder of Unsoon Jun.
0: Yes, so detectives decided to finally finish that paternity test for Lisa. Seriously, where they discovered that Lisa wasn't related to Gordon, Larry, or Gerald, or-, or Curtis. Yep, or
1: any other alias that he used. So who is Lisa? Who is her mother?
0: Where is her mother? I can't. Oh, who got- is this little girl? They don't know. Literally. So the case was reopened because they're like, well, sh- we, shit, who's this little girl? Well, I think
1: at this point they're figuring, okay, we have at least, at least one more victim on our hands here. Oh, so oh my God, I can't. December 2010, Bob Evans or whoever the hell he is, <laughs> because more comes up. Yeah. And we're not even done yet. He dies in California state prison without ever confessing to any of his crimes.
0: Bob is Jensen, who is Gerald, who is Larry, who is Curtis as well. Yes. I know that Like we've dealt with a lot of people who do have aliases on this show. Well, and here's the thing.
1: Nowadays, this would be harder to get away with, right? But back in the day, it was a little easier to pass along a fake name or get a job with a fake social security number or whatever.
0: So... Wild. why It's wild, yeah. So in the summer of 2016, Lisa learns her true identity thanks to a genealogist, Barbara Ray Venter. So she basically tracks
1: Lisa's DNA back to find her, her real family to yeah. try to
0: determine who she is. So Lisa's real name is Dawn Bodum. Her and her mother, Denise, had been missing for 35 mm-hmm. years. When... Baby Lisa was six months old.
1: Yeah, they were last seen on November 26, 1981, so shortly after Thanksgiving. So Denise Bodum, who was 23, of Manchester, New Hampshire, and her six-month-old daughter, Dawn, had packed up with Denise's boyfriend, Bob Evans, and were never seen again. But her family did not file a missing persons
0: report. Guess why? Guess why? Yes. I'm going to give you a second. Ready? Because he'd wedged her away from... Well, yeah, there had been some tension in the
1: family, and there had been some sort of argument, I think, between Denise and her mother the day that they were there for Thanksgiving, and they just assumed that she didn't want anything to do with them, and that's why they hadn't heard from her. Yep. In January of 2017, we're getting a little current here, guys, a press conference is held. It is announced that Bob Evans is the biological
0: father of the middle child found in the barrels at Bear Brook State Park. This is the child that wasn't genetically related to the other victims in the barrel. Right. Barrels. So at this point, Bob Evans
1: is, or Curtis Kimball or whoever, is believed to be the killer of all four victims in the barrel, including his own daughter. But we still don't know his daughter's name, who her mother is, and we still don't know who the other three victims are. Because guess what? Denise is not one of them. Wait, what? Denise. So Lisa's mom, Denise, is still missing. She is not the woman in the barrel. They checked.
0: Well, I just... Where are all these kids' mothers? Where are all their mothers? Where...
1: So he is obviously believed to be related to the disappearance of Denise because he had her daughter. Mm -hmm. Lisa's biological mother has still not been found. She's still missing to this day. But by the time the police made this discovery, the discovery about Lisa and the discovery about him being related, he's already dead. He died in prison. He's of no help. They can't ask him any questions. So some dots to be connected. Bob Evans had come to New Hampshire in the late 70s. He got a job as an electrician, and he worked that job with a man named Ed
0: Gallagher. Yeah. Sound familiar? Because it should. This is the man that owned the land where the barrels were found and also owned the store.
1: So it turns out he had allowed for waste from the electrical job, including some barrels to be dumped on his property. He had also hired Bob Evans to do some electrical work at the store, which tells you that he's familiar with the area, right? The cause of death in the murders was also the same in Unsoon soon June's case, which we know he committed that murder. Yep. its trauma and the bodies were all dismembered. Also, remember that the plastic the victims were tied in was tied with electrical wire. Who was an electrician. So that's six likely victims. We have Unsoon soon we have Denise Bodum, Lisa's mom, who's still missing, and the four barrel murders.
0: Also, I think that there has to be more because think about the middle child's mom. Where's she? Yeah. Where's her mom? So there's a lot, a lot
1: going on here. And we're going to talk about his timeline too. We're going to kind of briefly go over his timeline here in a little bit and also encourage everybody to go and look themselves because if you have family that is missing or that you haven't heard from in a long time or your aunt or your grandma talks about somebody who suddenly vanished after meeting a new boyfriend you might want to look into this guy obviously he is
0: a serial killer in july of 2017 bob evans was identified as Terry Peter Rasmussen. This was the first criminal case where genealogy was used to
1: identify the killer. But we know it's not the last yep. because the Golden State killer was also caught this way when the detective working on that case heard about the Bear Brook case. Mm-hmm. So as far as we know, the Bear Brook case was the very first case where a killer was identified using these genealogy websites. Crazy. It's crazy. Crazy. So, Terry Rasmussen, a.k.a. Bob Evans, a.k.a. Curtis Kimball, a.k.a. Larry Vanner, a.k.a. Gordon Jensen, a.k.a.
0: there's one more, Gerald Mockerman. Crazy. So many aliases. He was born in 1943, dropped out of high school, and in April of 1961, Rasmussen enlisted in the U.S. Navy, where he trained as an electrician. Mm -hmm. And he was discharged in July of 1967. They never spend too much time in the military. Then he moves to Hawaii to work in his parents' shoe shop. Random. I feel like that's a little random. That is a little random. So he marries his first wife in July of 1968. In 1968, he moves to Phoenix, Arizona, and his twin daughters were born. So, in Arizona, he worked as an electrician. In 1970, he moves to Redwood City, California, with his family where his son was born. And then, in 1972, his daughter is born. And that is now three kids. That's four kids. Four kids. Oh, yeah, twins. Four kids. Shortly after, him and his wife separate. Surprised? In April of 1973, Rasmussen is arrested in Phoenix, Arizona for aggravated assault.
1: Temper, temper. In
0: 1975 to 1976, Rasmussen visits his children in Arizona with an unidentified woman.
1: Yeah, so basically his kids don't quite remember what year this was, but he did come to visit them and had
0: an an unidentified woman with him. And this would be the last time his family saw him his kids, his ex-wife, last time. So I would assume,
1: unless there's another victim out there, that this is Lisa's mother. June 6, 2019, the victims in the barrel are identified. Technology advances finally made it possible to get DNA off of rootless hair from the victims. The DNA is uploaded into GEDmatch. Marlise Honeychurch was the adult victim Mary Elizabeth Vaughn was the older girl, and Sarah Lynn McWaters was the youngest girl. At the same time that this is happening, a woman named Rebecca Heath, and this is crazy, I actually heard an interview with her uh, somewhere a-, a while back, but she was a librarian, and she brought information to the police. She had seen something on a genealogy message board about family members looking for family members, of missing relatives. So they have like a message board on these genealogy sites that you can like post stuff on. So this case had been bothering her for a while and she had been kind of like fishing through these old message boards, like going back a decade looking for people who posted about their loved ones that might fit the description of these barrel murders. So this is crazy. She started listening to the podcast, Bear Brook, the one that we've been talking about. And she started taking notes. When she heard what areas they'd most likely lived in based on the isotope testing... That we talked about earlier. Right. She went back to a message board in 1999 on Ancestry.com where a woman was looking for her half-sister who had last been seen with her mom and older half-sister in 1978. It turned out that Rebecca was right. So around the same time, they get... This information, which matches up with the DNA information, and it all just comes together. I don't know. A race to the finish line. I don't know who turned in their information first. But it all happened around the same time. It all happened around the same time. I couldn't find exact dates on either one. It turned out either way that Rebecca was right,
0: and they had their victims so merlise elizabeth honeychurch was born on january 28th 1954 she was the second oldest of five children in 1961 merlise's parents divorced and her mother takes the three youngest children to california merlise stayed behind with her older sister and father in connecticut i think that's so weird why is he taking half the kids and she's taking the other half i don't understand because the children probably got to choose. The older ones probably got to choose
1: and the younger ones probably didn't have a choice based on the time. Mothers usually got custody in the 70s. So I would guess that the older children were old enough that the judge let them choose. They chose to stay with their father.
0: The younger ones had to go with their mother. Crazy. But at 15, she moves to California. On June 12, 1971, she marries her husband in Nevada. Moving around a lot. On December 6th, she gives birth to her first daughter, Marie Elizabeth Vaughn. And Marie is the oldest girl that's found in the barrels. Mm -hmm. So then in 1972, Merlise and her family moved to Stanford, Connecticut. And in 1973, they moved to Riverfall, Massachusetts, near where her husband is stationed in the Navy. In July, Merlise's husband and daughter moved to Lakewood, California without her. That summer, she travels to Lakewood to take custody of her daughter when her husband is not present. I think they call that kidnapping now. Yeah. Could explain why she drifted away from her family, too. Something's obviously going on. And then in 1974, the couple divorces and she is awarded custody of their daughter. In September, she marries her second husband in California. Then, in 1976, Marie is brought to the hospital with scarlet fever. In August, Marie's father sees them both for the final time in Hawaii Gardens, California. Then, in 1977, on December 13th, she gives birth to her second daughter, Sarah, who is the youngest girl found in the barrels. Correct. In 1978, she separates from her second husband. On August 30th, Sarah's father is awarded custody of her. Which is crazy for the time. Yes. And Merlise is awarded reasonable visitation. Whatever that means, yeah. Whatever that... So, obviously, something's going on with Merlise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That she's losing custody of her children. Yeah, maybe a little unstable. Maybe she's got a lot going on. We don't really know. Not really sure. Yeah. But in October, Sarah's dad meets another woman and Sarah is no longer seen with him. Mm. And is presumed to be back with her mother. Yeah. That's going to sting a little bit. In 1978, she also went to Thanksgiving dinner at her family's residence and introduced her husband, Terry Rasmussen. Yep. Another Thanksgiving one. And, I know.
1: And he's using his real
0: name in this one. Yeah. She left after some sort of family argument and was never seen again. Crazy, crazy story
1: how we got here. So basically, in conclusion, the Barrow murders happened between 1977 and 1985 based on time of death. We know that it had to be after 1978 now because Lee went home for Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. By January of 1986... Rasmussen had showed up with Lisa at the RV park, and she's five years old. So it would have to be late 70s. I would say between 78 and 81.
0: Yeah. It
1: would be the narrowed down time frame, just based on the information that we have.
0: Because he had to have enough time to meet Lisa, her mom, have a kid, kill Lisa's mom, probably. But wait.
1: Lisa also told police when she was first interviewed at five years old. She's five at this point. Yep. Which she doesn't remember this, but she told police that she had other siblings and that they had died while camping from eating poisonous mushrooms. So who knows what that means? Who knows what
0: that means? So there could be other victims still unknown. We don't know. Uh oh. because like that's a weird thing for a five year old to say to like make up something.
1: So with the information we have, I would assume that Marilise, Sarah, and Marie probably died in 81-ish at the latest.
0: Because Sarah's only two,
1: right? So she was born in 77.
0: So 79 or 80, really. I think it happened. I'm going to throw it out there. I think it was 81.
1: Then she would have been three or four, though. The youngest is only two. She was born in 77, 78, 79. So that would be 79, 80 at the latest.
0: Yeah, I guess. Whatever.
1: 79 or 80 at the latest. So that leaves a lot of time, a lot of time for other victims. Because in 86 is when Rasmussen showed up with Lisa at the RV park. So if we go backwards from that, she was probably born in 81, right? Right. So we have like a two-year gap where he meets Lisa's mom, she gets pregnant, and has... then she dies at some point. It's crazy. How many? And and how many more victims are out there? I don't even know. And who are these siblings? That is, she knew? is this
0: Sarah and Marie I don't think and the other girl?
1: I don't think it can be because if she was born in eighty-one, that would put Sarah at being seventy-seven, seventy-eight, seventy-nine, eighty, eighty-one, four years old. So she couldn't have known Sarah. Sarah Anne Marie would have had to have died before Lisa was born. I don't know. It's a weird thing for a five-year-old to say if it's completely untrue, if there were not other children or other people. They're- but who's to say that her mom didn't have other kids? Yeah. And since she's missing, that's my theory, is that Lisa's mom had other kids with her. And those are the family or siblings that died mm-hmm. from eating the mushrooms. A.K.A. getting hit on the head by Rasmussen. So left
0: unsolved, we have the middle girl's identification. Her mother, who's probably dead, but is still missing. Lisa or Don's mother, Denise.
1: Bodum, who is still missing. And probably a dozen else in the middle somewhere that could be. I just can't believe he was
0: he knew he was going to like spend the rest of his life in prison and he just but he didn't because he was oh yeah
1: oh yeah sentenced to 15 so he thought he
0: was getting out that's why he said nothing in prison at all because he thought he was getting out and then he died in prison yeah
1: he never tried to use information for bargaining chips he never told another inmate about anything that he had done nothing so here's some mysteries timeline fun stuff in 1980 in january Rasmussen was living in New Hampshire and going by the name Bob Evans. A certified letter was sent to his address and signed for by Elizabeth. So in 1980, technically, Maryleese Elizabeth Honeychurch could have still been alive in alive in January of 1980. So I would assume that the Elizabeth that signed for that certified letter is Marilise.
0: That's what I was thinking. I just didn't know the timeline for it. Same.
1: In February, Rasmussen was arrested in Manchester, New Hampshire, as Robert T. Evans for issuing a bad check on December 21, 1979, which had insufficient funds. He listed Elizabeth Evans as his wife on the arrest report. In May, he was arrested in Manchester, New Hampshire, as Robert Evans, again, for theft of services, this was electricity, where he labeled Elizabeth as his wife. And then in October, he was arrested again for diverting electricity, and no spouse was listed. So by October of 1980, he stops calling Elizabeth his wife. I would guess that between May, when he was arrested, and October, when he was arrested again, is when Marilise yeah. Honeychurch and her daughters and... The unknown child perished. And then at that point,
0: I think, is when he meets Lisa's mom. So in the mid-1980s, after he left with Lisa, but before he arrived at the RV park in Orange County, where he abandoned Lisa, Mm -hmm. Rasmussen was staying at another RV park, and he was seen with a woman and other children. And there are
1: other sightings of him with multiple children. So... This is back
0: to the mystery children. Yes. After the sighting, Rasmussen was fired from his job for stealing a bandsaw. Maybe to cut up some victims with?
1: I don't know. It, it would fit really well that Merlise and her children are these people that he is cited with. However, it doesn't work because unless they were really wrong on Sarah's age, she's already dead at this point. And Lisa's mom had to come into the picture at some point. So I doubt that Lisa came into the picture, or her mom and her came into the picture somehow, and he was still with Merlise at that time. It doesn't make sense, right? So we, I keep wanting to like my mind keeps wanting to put Merlise and Marie and Sarah in these
0: witness sightings, but it can't be that. Maybe these witness sightings though are maybe people are just a little mixed up on the years. Yeah, maybe. but it's
1: right before he gets to the other RV park with Lisa in Orange oh, County. Fuck. I don't know. So she's already
0: like Weird. almost five by this hmm. point. Maybe he was like, damn, this bandsaw would be really good for cutting up when I kill this woman and her kid. I should I should steal this. Well, I think I think he stole the bandsaw to cut up
1: Lisa's mom and whatever other children were with them, which I'm guessing were Lisa's children from before, because that kind of seems to be his M.O. is getting together with women who already have children. So that's my theory. I think there's a whole another family missing still. In 1984, Rasmussen is hired under the name of Curtis Kimball in California, where he worked until May of 85. So we know he's in California as Curtis Kimball in 85, from 84 to 85. Okay. In May of 1985, Rasmussen is arrested in Cypress, California, as Curtis Mayo Kimball for the DUI, which he has. Lisa, he has Lisa, Lisa in the car. In the car with him at this point. So in six months, the first barrel will be found. Also in 1985, a private investigator would be hired to find Marlise and her girls, but would be unsuccessful. And I couldn't find who had hired this private investigator. If I had to guess, I would say because of the issue with her family, it was probably the father of one of the children. Because okay. that they, they, we have two different dads that now their children are missing, right? Yeah or maybe a grandparent or something. else. Someone know. to find. But it wasn't It wasn't enough that she was reported missing, but somebody was worried enough that they hired a private investigator, yeah, which makes I'm, me think custody. Yeah,
0: I'm just thinking it was a custody thing. I think that because she ran off with both the girls. In 1986, in January, he turns up at the Holiday Host
1: RV park under the name Gordon Jensen, with Lisa, but without Denise. Mm-hmm. By June, he has abandoned Lisa, or Dawn, as her real name is, In September, a fingerprint match between Gordon Jensen and Curtis Kimball is made, confirming that they are the
0: same person. Which is that fingerprint that they pulled from the RV park. Right. In 1988, he's pulled over in San Luis Obispo under the name Jerry Gerald Mockerman. He was driving a stolen car from Idaho. You never get away with stolen cars. I don't know why people steal cars.
1: In 1989, Rasmussen is arrested in California on warrants from the child abandonment and sentenced to three years in prison. In 1990, he is paroled and
0: disappears. In 1985, a woman is found inside a refrigerator dumped on the side of the road. Her hands are bound with electrical tape and she had a sock in her mouth and it was tied down with electrical tape. She had died from a blow to the head. So this is one of the cases that they've looked into. Like
1: maybe he did it. He had something to do with this case because it matches his MO and it matches the general area where he may have been
0: mm-hmm. at that time. So in 1998, he was pulled over in California under the name Lawrence William Vander. So Vanner. Larry Larry Vanner. That's the name that he uses with Unsoon June, and is cited for not having insurance or a driver's license. Like, look at all of these
1: times, though, where he could have potentially been stopped. Like, you don't have a driver's license or proof of insurance. How about you have to prove who you are before we let you go? How about Mm. we take your fingerprints? Bet he didn't pay that citation either.
0: In 2000, the second barrel's found. In 2002, Unsoon soon June is murdered. In June of 2003, Rasmussen is convicted and sentenced to 15 years to life in prison. In August, DNA confirms that he was not the biological father of Lisa. In 2010, he dies in
1: prison without confessing to any of his crimes.
0: In July of 2016, San Bernardino County contacts New Hampshire in reference to Rasmussen and his connection to New Hampshire. In October, DNA is confirmed that he is the biological father of the middle child in the barrels. In December, Denise Bodum... Bodin, Bodum, is considered missing 35 years after she goes missing. Because now
1: they know that Lisa, she's nowhere to be found. I, yeah, that Lisa's hers. In January of 2017, authorities announced that they believe Rasmussen is responsible for the murders. On June 20th, police release the interview of Rasmussen from the In Soon June case. And they're hoping that this will trigger... Somebody like someone. I saw that guy with my family
0: or something. In August, police revealed that the killer's true identity is Terry Peter Rasmussen. Okay, and this is
1: kind of interesting. And I just threw this in because I thought it was so cool that this was solved because of this. But on November 14, the identity of a Manchester teenager who was missing since November 22nd, 1984, has been revealed thanks to a tip that was submitted because of the January 2017 press conference about what authorities had learned about Rasmussen. The teenager, identified as Elizabeth Lamote, was found dead in Tennessee in 1985, and her remains went unidentified until November 13, 2018. Lamote's family notified police they thought she may have been the woman associated with Rasmussen known as Elizabeth Evans. Through DNA testing, officials were able to confirm Lamote's identity. Although officials said that Lamote was not Elizabeth Evans, the investigations into both Lamote's disappearances and the death and the identity of Elizabeth Evans are ongoing. It's worth noting that according to the latest timeline provided by authorities, Rasmussen worked as Curtis Kimball at an electric company in California from March 84 to May 85. So... She disappeared in 84. So basically, she disappeared from an area that he was known to be in. And she did. I I believe she died from blunt force trauma. But they're basically saying they don't know that he's connected to her. But they're saying that they don't think she's the Elizabeth that signed for the certified male. But they were able to identify her body that had been unidentified based on the tip called in because of the press conference. Yep. Which is crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Here's my issue. Someone has to know of more missing people that might be able to identify more of his victims. Also, where is this unidentified girl's mother? The Who one in the barrel. Who is unidentified girl? Who is she? Somebody has to be missing this family member. Somebody has to know. I mean, think about it, you guys. I have family members that I haven't seen for years and years, right? I think everybody has that family member that kind of disappeared or fell off the radar or maybe got involved in drugs or maybe had a family dispute or met a new boyfriend or something happened that created a wedge between them and their family. And maybe they weren't reported missing. Somebody has to know who this little girl is, though. Yeah. And you can find the isotope information on her that shows where she more than likely lived her entire life.
0: Like year by year, like how long ago she was in different areas. It's crazy. So
1: somebody has to know this little girl. She has to be connected to somebody's family tree somehow, some way. I don't know, but go and look at the timelines. Look at the video of Terry Rasmussen. He's a sketchy motherfucker, sketchy guy, whatever. But if you have any information, call the National Center for Missing... And exploited children at one eight hundred the lost. Also, go check out the Jason Moon podcast, which is called Bear Brook. I think it's like seven episodes, maybe. Go. We we've brought it up multiple times during it, this. It's done it's, over. It's done over years. So when he started this, his research on this
0: podcast, these murders hadn't been solved. Actually, like the whole podcast happened, and it hadn't been solved.
1: Right. So the the case actually getting solved is an update, the last update on his podcast. So go and check that out. I also got a lot of my information from two Timeline articles. One was from NowCast News and the other one was from ABC News. And I'll put a link of both of those into the notes of this episode. So it's pretty crazy. Also stay tuned after the music for A Phoenix Interruption. That happened today. I probably yell at Madison a little bit as well. I don't know. We are also going to, in a separate little mini for our Patreons, we are going to tell the case of Danny Paquette, which is that case of the man who got shot the day before the first barrel was found. Maddie already forgot. I already forgot who Danny Paquette was. So if you want to know about that story, click on over to our Patreon. It's pretty crazy. It's just a little one, but it's it's pretty bonkers. So yeah, I think that's it. Thanks yeah. for listening, you guys. If you need some more content, go and check out our Patreon. We yes. have lots of episodes on there. You get a sticker. Well, we have our Bunker Talk for every episode. And then we also have a bonus episode every month. A new one comes out on there. Um, ooh, Speaking of Patreons. And we have a new Patreon. Hello, Heather. You want to try it?
0: Ponsano? I don't.
1: Ponsano? Ponsano?
0: Correct us. Correct us. We know we're wrong. (laughs) We know it. We're
1: pretty sure we're wrong. So, yeah. Thank you so much for supporting us. We really appreciate it. And we did still send you a Christmas card. So,
0: you should. (laughs) Yes, we did. You
1: should get a Christmas card along with your sticker, Heather.
0: So, I know you will get it after Christmas. But... And... You know, if you do sign up for Patreon in the next couple months, you will still get a Christmas card. I'm not gonna sorry about them? it.
1: I'm not. We have. We have, a, we we have, have like, so
0: many. I think we have like 10 left. So 10
1: more. The next 10 Patreons will also get our Christmas card as well. So I think it just says happy holidays, though. So I guess it still kind of applies. But thank you, Patreons, for supporting us. We really appreciate you guys. We did our first live this week, which was super fun. Rough. It was a little rough, <laughs> though. <laughs> We basically just went on, had a lot of technical issues, wished everybody a Merry Christmas and, and then made, and then made fun of my sister, I think. So that was uh, that was fun, but we did wear our ugly Christmas sweaters and yeah, it was fun. So come and join us on Patreon. We really appreciate you guys. You're amazing and, uh, yeah, I think that's it. Thanks again for the break
0: and we will. See you guys next week. Or sooner if you go join Patreon and listen to all the stuff there. You'll have so much to binge. Just go sign up for Patreon.
1: Yeah, and our episodes on Patreon are just regular crime episodes too.
0: Yes. So I think this week we had
1: uh, Phoebe Hanstruck case. Last week we had, J- or last month we had J.C. Dugard. I'm afraid of everything.
0: Madison's afraid of garbage
1: shoots now because of the Phoebe Hanschuk case, if you haven't heard it. I could be jammed on a garbage chute so easily. So easily. All right. Well, thank you, guys, and we will see you next week. All right. Bye, guys. But yeah, we were able to spend time with our family and we were able to get caught up. So it was pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, I actually got like all my Christmas shopping done this year, unlike most years where <laughs> unlike I unlike every other out of, year ever. <laughs> run out of time.
1: We got all of ours done as well. The only problem we had was Phoenix's main Christmas present. Never showed up. Never showed up. So we ordered it first in November. It was an art easel super cute. She's super into Nobody art. Nobody tell Phoenix. She, yeah, don't tell her. She hasn't gotten it yet. But She's super into art. She's just like Maddie. We got her all of these paints and we got her all of this like fun stuff to go with it. And then two weeks after I order it, it tells me that my order's running late. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. Whatever. It's but November. it says it's still going to come by the 10th of December. And I'm like, perfect. So then like the 11th of December, I pull it up and it's like, Yeah, your package might be lost. And I'm like, oh my God. So I track it. It sure enough hasn't been scanned since the distribution center. It's definitely not coming. So I go to see if I can order a new one and it tells me that it's not going to come in time. So I get a refund on that order. I go and I find one that's prime delivery, says it'll be here before Christmas. It's a totally different art table, more expensive too, but I'm like, whatever. We need to get our art table here. I order it. It's like, your order. We'll be here by the 21st. And I'm like,
0: perfect. Guess what happened? On the 21st, I get the
1: notice that says your package may be running late. By the 23rd, it says your package may be lost. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me?
0: So we order a fourth one. So third one. Third? Shit. I lost count. (laughs) So
1: Maddie can't count. So then I'm like, okay, send a replacement, whatever. I guess she'll just get it after Christmas. And then today, which is the 31st. Today is the 31st. Oh, today's the 31st. So it's like January for you guys, but it's the 31st for us. I get a message saying, your package is running late. And I'm like, God fucking damn it. So... It's never going to come. It's never going to come, but she got a bunch of paints that she's just been painting on the table with. I'm like, oh, God. We, yeah, we already broke into the pants the other day. Yeah, she doesn't seem to mind or care. I mean, she I don't think she feels like she got gypped for Christmas, so I guess it turned out OK. Yeah, I guess it was fine. It was fine. Whatever. I've never had that happen, though. I've always been so far ahead that I've never run into that issue before.
0: Well, we're not all you, Mom. We're not all you, Marie. We can't all. Don't
1: call me Marie. It's weird.
0: I can call you Marie if I want. You can't. Now I'm going to start calling you Marie. Get ready, I read it, guys. I gave you life. I can take it away.
1: That is the. It's my legal right. You know,
0: I'm pretty sure there's a loophole. There's a loophole somewhere that says I can give you I'm pretty sure there's plenty of mothers that are actually spending time in prison right now that can <laughs> probably tell you differently. <laughs> they just didn't find the right loophole. Okay. I, uh,
1: anyway it's like a. am not really gonna kill her you guys please don't call
0: like a 2000 like not meme right there can you take your bracelet off please i accidentally did that i know but you're gonna it's be doing gonna it again. you do it once you're gonna do it 20 times i know it
1: no it's fine i did just
0: order some really cute rings on amazon take
1: off the bracelet or i will murder you <laughs> i don't i'll give you a rollo you want a rollo i'll give you a rollo if you take off your bracelet By the way, I don't even like Rolos that much. By the way, I got candy in my stocking, which if anybody knows me, I'm not. uh, Everybody loves candy, right? I love chocolate, but I'm not a big candy eater. I try to avoid it like the plague. And now I feel bad if I don't eat it. So I'm like slowly
0: working my way through it. You know what is kind of upsetting? I had no say of what went in your stocking. You did. I was at work when they all went and got (laughs) shit for you.
1: So basically, I got a pack of licorice. I got two Packs of Rolos, which I haven't had a roll. Whoops, I haven't had a Rolo in probably ten years. But the other day, one came out of something like a little. We uh, were actually
0: on Facetime when this happened. Yeah. I was that
1: work? And I was like, I was like, I forgot I like Rolos, but only if they're soft and fresh. I don't like them when they're like hard. But so I got two packs of Rolos because I made that comment, and then I got a Butterfinger, which is probably my favorite candy bar.
0: Who doesn't like Butterfinger? I know, right? I don't think I actually know anyone who doesn't like Butterfinger. Like I know people who don't like like Twix and Snickers and different things I, like that. And
1: I can I, I do like Snickers. I'm not a, Twix isn't my favorite, but Butterfinger the best. And then I got a little bag of peanut butter M Ms. So all good,
0: all good things. But now yeah, I didn't pick any of that out. Now I, I have no, to eat it though. <laughs> I had nothing to do with that.
1: Oh, and I also get in every year. In my stocking, a big stack of lotto cards. How much do we win like this scratch year? Scratch ones. Uh, I think this year I won fifteen bucks. No, I think it was like 12, 12 bucks or something. Twelve like bucks because yeah.
0: one of the ones I scratched off, I know got was a ten. dollars You were winner. ten, and then I got one two dollar one. And there was you guys. This is out of like
1: twenty lotto.
0: cards. Like this is like a like don't a buy scratch stack. lotto.
1: It's not worth it. But last year, I think I made more. I think I got like 20 some dollars last yeah. year. So this year was a little. I think that's probably
0: the best we've ever done. I like know, right?
1: <laughs> That was good. Our Christmas was good. What was your favorite gift that you got, Maddie, this year? I don't know. I like the kitty hammock that I got. Oh, she got like this kitty hammock that suction cups to the window. But you guys, it doesn't fit on any of our goddamn windows. It fits
0: on one window, and it's the big window above the front door. And
1: we actually have
0: big custom windows.
1: So this... Kitty hammock is meant for, like, I don't know. I don't
0: know. Like, our windows are pretty big. Like, and even it our French doors, it doesn't yeah, fit on. no. Yeah, it doesn't fit on our front. Like, it literally doesn't fit anywhere except for that one window. So now it's on a giant window above our
1: front door. So it's, like, up really high. But she jumps in there and watches us come and go
0: when we leave the house. It's super yeah, cute. It's super cute. She has a little teddy bear in there, too. it's I really like that one. That one yeah, was good. Yeah, really cute.
1: I got a pair of sweatpants, which... I've been wearing the same sweatpants for about 15 years now.
0: <laughs> yeah, we've started I've started to I got her like these yoga pants sweatpants. I don't even know how to explain them. Yeah. So
1: I have two pairs of sweatpants now. And before I had one that were covered in paint, they were so they were like men's. No, now you
0: have three pairs. If
1: if you're No, I have co- these and the black ones. Oh, and my old and ones. And your old ones. Yeah.
0: Come on, Mom. So sweatpants. You, you didn't just throw
1: those away. I know, right? No, I didn't. I, I, I wore them yesterday. But I also got a metal Cup that I can heat up over oh, my yeah, fire. Oh yeah, it's like a
0: cute one. It has a
1: lid, so none of my cups have ever had a lid, and I cannot drink my coffee or any kind of hot beverage
0: once it cools down. It has to be scolding hot. See, for me, I can I'll drink it until it's scolding hot, and once it starts to get cold, I'll just down the rest of it.
1: Yeah, I don't do that. So when I make my coffee at my campsite when we backpack, I always have to put my cup back over yeah. the burner like maybe three times because there's no lid. It's a thin metal cup. It's really lightweight. So now the one that I got it has a lid and will hopefully keep my coffee warm a little longer, and it's not purple, so I like that too. It's white.
0: Hmm, now we won't have matching cups. <laughs> you just have to get one now too. Uh, what else did I get? I don't even remember. I'm right trying now. to remember what else I got too. There was something else that's oh, I got a little sprayer, like a really cute, like old looking, like sprayer for my plants, a mister. Yeah, it's like a glass antique looking it's green one. I glass. found it. I found it downtown. It's super cute.
1: And it's just got like this little mister on it, and it's like this green color that kind of matches her room.
0: And, and her I got a I got a new blanket that's like green bedspread. It's, it's like, like what what material is that? I don't know, but it's really it's comfy. like a velvety kind of material. Yeah, it's really cute.
1: Hopefully, all of you had an amazing holiday and got to do something for your sanity and make you feel a little better because I know it's been a rough year. Yeah, for all of us. And tonight. For us it's New Year's Eve, so tomorrow we will start a new year and hopefully it will be filled no, with We less will be going madness. we will be
0: going in quiet. We will say nothing and we will hope that mm-hmm. everything gets better. But we will not Don't
1: make eye contact. Don't touch anything. Go in quiet, guys. Okay, will <laughs> be okay. Head down. It's Big. by the way, I have actually found a barrel in the woods before when we lived in Oak Harbor when I was a kid. Did you touch it? We did well, we climbed on it, but we never opened it. Mom!
0: there's probably a body in there are you
1: kidding me you know what's funny i totally forgot about it until i was probably in my 20s when i remembered the barrel and i was like i wonder if i could find it again i wonder if i could find that house and i wonder if i could find that property. well adventure <laughs> should we go for an
0: adventure we i think we should go on. An- sheds going on nights we could go on an adventure out there we could do a whole podcast thing about it i think the barrel was black though